across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the beginning of yet another COVID cycle this morning as many people wake up to half-term holidays, new lockdown restrictions and more power struggles as regions across Britain. During the course of this show, uh, we expect to get news from Manchester that Andy Burnham has caved into government demands for a Tier 3 lockdown after being promised millions in support for businesses, although of course he says he's not just going to roll over for a cheque. Well, how long does he continue uh, to think this is a good idea? And how long before he decides that actually uh, the health and welfare of the people of Manchester perhaps is more important than his own petty squabbling with the Prime Minister? There might also be an announcement in Wales of a so-called circuit breaker lockdown that would affect the entire country. We'll be talking to one MP who has signed a letter to Burnham and Sir Keir Starmer urging them to step away from calls for a nationwide lockdown. That man is Bill Wigan, Conservative MP for North Herefordshire. But with school holiday going on can you honestly say you don't expect your kids to be sent home again for a few weeks we need to hear your stories from the weekend were you out what did you see is the hospitality business finished in huge swathes of the country we'll be talking to london restaurant owner james kia varini but the big and overarching question for me today is will somebody out there please tell me the truth about what is going on how about this from a scare story in the guardian this morning about hospitals in the north running out of beds It says here, by Friday, 211 of the 257 critical care beds in Greater Manchester, that's 82%, were being used for either those with COVID or people who were critically ill because of another illness. So what you're telling me is that the critical care beds uh, are actually being used for critical care. Really? And that somehow is alarming? Surely that's their job. Critical care beds are for those who are critically ill. And it gives no impression whatsoever of the uh, number of beds being used for COVID patients. Absolute and utter cobblers. Coming up later on in the show, Peter Hitchens joins us with his take on the increasingly schizophrenic approach to COVID-19 now being taken by the government and the news that Italy has now brought in the rule of six. Plus, we'll be asking why on earth the bishops from the Church of England have anything to say about the Brexit withdrawal agreement. What's it going to do with them? Maybe you should look after your own house as they say. 0344 499 1000. And we'll be finding out just what you've been shopping for during the pandemic. You might find the results quite surprising. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, let us go to Bill Wigan, Conservative MP for North Herefordshire. He is one of 20 MPs who's written uh, to both Sir Keir Starmer and to Andy Burnham, uh, basically advising them not to try and push for this uh, sort of uh, what they call circuit breaker lockdown, which would affect the entire country, making absolute sense, of course, because why would you want to lock down Cornwall when it has hardly any cases at all, just because somebody in Liverpool um, has broken the rules? Let's find out from Bill uh, how that's all going. Bill, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. It's lovely to be on your show. No, lovely to have you here. Thank you very much indeed. uh, Common sense, as we call it here, is in short supply uh, during this pandemic, but your letter makes perfect sense to me. There's no point at all, is there, in having areas which are relatively uh, COVID-safe being locked down, telling people not to go out, telling people to stay at home, when in fact uh, there's parts of the country which need to do that, uh, but not all parts. Well, the other thing, of course, Mike, you're absolutely right, is that we've got to pay for the NHS. We've got to make sure we've got businesses working. We all remember how unhappy the publicans were when they had to shut an hour early. 
And now the Labour Party think it would be a good idea to close down the whole country. In my county, we only have 38 cases in every 100,000, compared to Liverpool with 678 or Manchester with 474. These are wildly different uh, cases and therefore we need to be treated differently. And I think the government's got it right. Yeah, and also I'd like to ask this question this morning. Will somebody please tell me the truth? Because an awful lot of untruths, or shall we say people being economic with the truth, in terms of things like the numbers of beds available in the north of England, in terms of the number of infections which are causing death. You know, there's an awful lot of people using this pandemic, it seems, to get what they want. Well, I think you used the statistic that was 82% critical care bed usage, which gives quite a lot of spare capacity. Normally they're running at closer to 100%. So uh, I think you're absolutely right to question some of these statistics. And we've certainly seen the BBC have to correct the way it massages the figures every evening on the 10 o'clock news. So I think that uh, we need to take a common sense approach, as you rightly said. And that means regional shutdowns where the region is really struggling to control the virus. In areas like mine and and, uh, the Isle of Wight, which has only got 18 cases, um, we really need to... uh, treat it differently and make sure that counties like Herefordshire are at work paying for the NHS facilities that they need in Manchester and Liverpool, albeit in a small way. Sure. And the overarching question for me, Bill, as well, is, you know, will we be doing this for a time immemorial, you know, or will there at some point be a change of heart from the government in which they say, look, you know, we know that the more that there are people out and about, the more that this will spread. However, in the end, you know, we must sort of accept that we can't stop that. Well, I think that my big hope is the vaccine. I've, I've arranged briefings with the three uh, major vaccine companies that are progressing their vaccine trials. Mm. And I'm hoping and praying that by the end of this year, we will have not only a vaccine, but the government will have ordered, well, it's already ordered the doses that it needs, but that that production will have started. So I'm optimistic that by the end of the year and perhaps the beginning of next year, we should not only have left the European Union, but we'll also have a cure for COVID-19. Well, that would be a great Happy New Year present, wouldn't it? Because, I mean, people are no. getting thoroughly um, cheesed off, I think is the only way I can put it, without being banned from the radio, um, of all of this nonsense which is surrounding <laughs> us all. People are fed up. They want to go on holiday. You know, they want to go and enjoy themselves. We've, we're coming into a half term uh, for a lot of people already in it. Some yeah. people have travelled abroad, but it's becoming more and more difficult to find anywhere to go. Yeah, and the children are coming home from school. And I think one of the great successes is that we've got the schools open. I think we need to make sure that people can go to work. Most of us, I've had it myself, it's it's not a nice disease, but most of us are not likely to die. Mm. But the people that we love and care about who are do need that protection. So the sooner we've got a vaccine, the better. And I think Boris Johnson could be having a very happy new year if we can get uh, some common sense through and get these uh, vaccines out yes. there. Yes. Well, you're certainly more optimistic than the Prime Minister is, because I think last time he was asked the question, he thought he thought we might not get, we might not ever get one, but certainly uh, we, he wouldn't he wouldn't guarantee that there would be one by the spring. Well, I asked him that myself, and he said he's not counting his chickens. Yeah. But uh, he hadn't written it off either. No, indeed. And as far as the government's kind of scientific advisers go, I mean, a lot of people, myself included, have been very critical of their kind of doom mongering and their projections and all of the things that we hear on a weekly basis that, you know, if we don't do this, this could happen. And I'm sick of hearing the word could. You know, we're going to be speaking later on in this hour to a restaurant owner in London uh, who I was with just last week who basically said, look, we can handle 
something like a shutdown if we know what the future holds. But it's very difficult for people when they don't have any kind of long term plan that they can make. And I think that, uh, you know, we were told uh, in the press that the uh, government was told to close down the whole country about a month ago. Mm. And, and for me and for the restaurant hold, um, restaurateur that you're going to talk to, the key thing is that the government is desperately trying to keep businesses open. You know, the Conservative Party is a party of business. We need people to be able to go to work so that we can pay for the NHS. And therefore, if you listen to the medical experts, they will always tell you to urge on the side of caution. That's their job. They, they want to keep you healthy. We as a government need to take the political decision, decision, which is to say, yes, we want to keep you healthy, but there's a degree of risk. And for uh, anything you do, there's always risk. Your restaurateur risks food poisoning every night, but in such a small way. And that's why we manage that politically. Yes, but why do these scientists seem so impervious to the suggestions that others have made that actually it's all very well saving lives from COVID, but you're causing uh, anxiousness, anxiety, um, depression, and possibly risking other people's lives uh, on the business side. And not to forget the operations that people absolutely. are absolutely frightened to have. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. But I mean, if you're a scientist, you will you will say this is the worst case mm. because that's what they've always done, and that's the problem with asking a doctor. They you know, they, they're always trying to give you the, 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 the most protected, yeah. from their point of view, answer. Well, it's a bit like, unless, you, unless you've got a very good doctor who happens to be, you know, a sort of rather interesting human being. If you said to any doctor uh, in a GP surgery, do you think I should go skiing this winter? They'd tell you not to go because you <laughs> might break your leg, you know, or you might die in a plane crash. But, you know, you don't have to listen to these people. You, you don't, you do have to listen to them, but then you have to take the... Uh, practical decisions about the risk that's uh, actually applying to yourself. Yes, and and that that's the common sense answer. We're not we're not medical experts ourselves, but when we meet a GP, we don't necessarily do absolutely everything they say. But when it's serious, we we are quite happy to trust them with our lives. So. Uh, it's a balance thing, really. Yeah. Spe and speaking of balance, you amongst uh, twenty MPs have written to Andy Burnham and Sir Keir Starmer. Have you had a reply yet? I don't expect we'll ever get a reply. <laughs> really? I think their position is so inconsistent, uh, particularly Andy Burnham. To, to say you want the money, but you're happy to put people's lives at risk until you get it. And then when they know Andy was part of the government that spent all our money, they've had three general elections. They haven't learned anything about public money. Mm. And, and at the end of the day, if you're going to give it to people for furloughing, if you're going to save the NHS then you can't just dosh out wadges of cash every time some mayor asks for it. And, and I'm, the bottom line is that I think it, Keir Starmer's position is even worse because he's just calling to shut down the whole country. How are we going to pay for the NHS if we do that? We can't. Right. So they're bonkers, I'm afraid. Well, it's true. I mean, this morning, uh, Andy Burnham's quoted as saying he's not going to just roll over for a cheque. And I think in the words paraphrased of, uh, by Winston Churchill, we've already established what you are. It's just a question of how much it's going to cost. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I think he is going to roll over for a cheque. The uh, alarming thing is really these mayors are put there for the benefit of the people, not to extract money from all the other people. And I think we've, we've really uh, made a mistake with some mm. of this 
government. Yeah, and isn't it extraordinary that Sir Keir Starmer, the former Trotskyist who supposedly uh, represents the working man and woman in this country, is happy for them to be sort of thrown on the bonfire uh, in order to make a political point. You know, he thinks it's a great idea for people who can't work from home because they do manual jobs to somehow become poorer and become worse off. Uh, absolutely. It, and, and inevitably, with a crisis, the people with the smallest and lowest incomes are the ones that are hit the hardest. So putting them out of work for any period of time is nigh on cruel. It is. And I've got a question finally for you uh, from Peter, who has t- uh, texted into us here uh, at Talk Radio 87222 is the number. He says, could you please push the question? What if we don't have a vaccine, says Peter? Well, the, there are th- over 300 different vaccine trials going on around the world. So the question is not whether we don't have a vaccine, but how long it takes before we get one right. that is effective. I mean, the Russian one is already out there. You might want to try that one. You might not. But I would like to see our country. And we are leading the world at the moment with the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca trials. And if you think it's not going to work, why have they got this far? I think we've got to be a lot more optimistic, Peter, because it's going to save not only our country, but internationally our reputation as a science-backed economy. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And so will we, do you think, Bill, have a better week this week? So when we're speaking to you uh, this time next week, will we go looking back on this week and think, well, at least things got a bit better than they were the week before? Well, fingers I crossed. I've got my fingers crossed, as you see. I see that. I think, I think if you just imagine what a nightmare our poor Prime Minister is having... You know, he's fighting the Europeans. He's got that dreadful Michel Barnier in his ear. Yeah. He's got COVID going on. He's got Keir Starmer telling him he's doing it all wrong. He's got people dying. Yeah. And, and I know Boris well. The last thing he wants is any of this to go wrong. Uh, so every week before we get out of the EU and before we get this vaccine is tough. And, and politics is, is really difficult at the moment. But then being a British person is difficult at the moment. And so it's important that we feel that and understand the misery that people are going through too. Yes, absolutely. Bill, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Bill Wigan, Conservative MP for North Herefordshire. Uh, He hopes there will be a vaccine. Uh, He hopes, uh, probably with his fingers crossed, that this will be a better week uh, than last week. I hope that someone, somewhere, will start telling me the truth. I think Bill went some way towards doing that. But if you are up in Manchester, I'd love to hear from you, because what is Andy Burnham exactly playing at? This morning, uh, he's been offered a bucket load of money. Now he says it's not about the money. Last week, he said it was about the money. What's it going to be about tomorrow? 0344 499 1000. And if there are all of these alarmist calls uh, for beds to be filled up, what's that all about? Because it's more projection. It's more coulds, woulds, maybes. It's not definite, I'm afraid. None of it is. This is the point. And why is Sir Keir Starmer, having called for a national lockdown, so quiet? It's very strange, isn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, Let's talk about instead Brexit, uh, the hokey-cokey of international politics with Lance Foreman, a man we haven't spoken to for a while. Lance, a very good uh, morning to you. Very good morning to you, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, I'll take your views on the COVID restrictions a little bit later on, I think, because I'd be interested to know what, what you make of it all. But the the okie-cokie description of Brexit at the moment seems to be about right, because, you know, last week it was, um, you know, another deadline uh, br- busted and then another deadline busted. Then a no deal was on the cards. Now it seems to be back off the table uh, and they're back uh, possibly talking about having more talks. 
Well, this is typical of any negotiation. Um, in fact, I, I think I tweeted back in March this year that I believe that a deal would probably be done in November. Mm. Um, why would you do a deal earlier than necessary if you can use the remaining time to just, you know, push your argument or defend an argument uh, that might end up getting you a, a better negotiated outcome? So, um, you know, we're in the final throes of these talks. Um, as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as Boris is concerned, you know, it's not the end of the world if we do walk away and we end up with what he refers to as an Australian type deal. That's absolutely fine. But it would be in both parties' interests, you know, to, to have some kind of deal. But, you know, it's up to the EU now. If they don't want it, fine. If they do, great. Yeah, I mean, I've always said, Lance, and, and I think you would echo this, that business is done um, between businesses and rather than between countries. And there'll be you know, companies already sort of, you know, kind of geared up, if you like, to what's going to happen on January the 1st or the 2nd or the 3rd or the 4th, you know. And it's not as if there's any great necessity for everything to be written down and every I to be dotted and every T to be crossed by December the 31st, is there? Um, absolutely not. I mean, obviously, the more that can be nailed down, the better. But um, I think, you know, in time, we, we will, both parties will work out what's working well and what isn't working so well. And hopefully they'll, they'll work to, uh, to make it better for both sides. But I think what you're starting to see now is divisions within the EU membership itself. Mm. You see, the EU have a different objective to the members of the EU. And there's no question that uh, Germany, for example, you know, we're their biggest export partner. They want to do a deal with us, but they're being held up by the French fishermen. The Germans don't eat fish. They're not that fussed about fish. <laughs> so there's there's an internal conflict there. And, you know, maybe, they, maybe Merkel will have to, I don't know, you know, give a special deal to French fishermen on Mercedes or something. I don't know, you know what it's going to take. But um, it could be that there will have to be internal deals with other EU members to, you know, so they all keep themselves satisfied if they want to get a deal done with the UK. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, because I was listening to some woman from the Confederation of British Industry this morning, some baroness or other, who was talking about the very complicated series of, of hoops that we're going to have to jump through uh, in order to do deals with the EU. But these are all hoops constructed by the EU, surely. Yeah, well, the EU is in, you see, they're in a catch-22 position, the, the EU itself. If, if Britain does well out of Brexit, it sort of begs the question, what is the point of the EU? Because other countries that are currently EU members will look at Britain. I know in Italy, they're very divided now. There's a, there's a strong, very strong uh, uh, leave, uh, sort of growing uh, leave desire now. And I think if they see us doing well outside the EU, they'll think, well, you know what, let's leave ourselves. On the other hand, the EU, you know, obviously they, 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 they need us, or that they need to show their own values. So they could try punishing us as, as you know, as a result of uh, leaving, but then they'll end up punishing EU members too, and that's not going to work. So I think the EU themselves are in a very difficult sort of balancing act um, but I think it will all come good because at the end of the day, it's what the it's what the members want, and Germany is the key member, and Germany wants a deal. Yeah, and meanwhile, this morning in the front page of the Daily Mail, uh, we see the bishops have started to get involved. I mean, I was wondering uh, if we should maybe ask the Dalai Lama what he thinks, and possibly even the chief rabbi. Well, uh, interesting you say that actually, and, I, and I've, I've deliberately picked out a quote here um, because the chief rabbi was asked, actually, the former chief rabbi, Lord Sachs, was interviewed um, by Emily Maitlis on Newsnight. Oh, yeah. 
in May last year, and she asked him whether democracy trumps everything. She was talking about the, you know, the referendum and whether democracy trumps everything. And she said, you know, that you know, even if um, Brexit is economically or socially damaging, which obviously you and I don't believe it would be, um, you know, should Brexit still proceed? Sachs responded and he said, and I'm going to quote him precisely, he said, democracy is one of the most profound political ideas ever because it says every one of us counts, every one of us has a voice. You lose that, you lose everything because it then becomes a game for the rich and powerful, which is great for them and bad for the poor and powerless. And then Maitlis went on and she said, so is delivering democracy, even if it results in national economic damage, imperative? And again, he, he, I finished with this, he says, I believe that being a parent means trusting your children, even if you're sure they're getting it wrong. Believing in politics means believing in democracy, even if you're sure the electorate is getting it wrong. You have to empower the electorate. That is what democratic faith is about. You know, he was a believer in democracy, and that's what's fundamental here. You know, when I stood as a Brexit Party MEP um, in May of uh, you know, 2019, there were so many people, even on the Remain side, that said that they would vote for the Brexit party because that is more important. Democracy is more important than which way the vote actually went. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's, you know, that's what these church leaders should be focusing on right now. Well, exactly right. And I mean, you couldn't find a less democratic place in the House of Lords, really. So for them to be mouthing off uh, about why they think Brexit is so damaging, you know, quite frankly, if it was down to me, I'd, they'd be the first people I would cull from the House of Lords, you know, because why on earth, just because you happen to be an official uh, of the Church of England, which was invented by Henry VIII because he wanted to marry another woman, you know, why on earth are they in there? Well, look, I, I, have, I have absolutely no problem in them passing their views and so on. But I, I do think it's uh, it's it's sad that you know once we've had you know the, the largest democratic mandate we keep saying it you know ever why people just can't fall into line after yeah. that. But, um, well, yeah, I mean it's all very well for them to have their view, but they are in a position to be an impediment to the progress of the bill, which means that actually they're far more dangerous than anyone else who's got a view uh, that they've got who happens to not be in the House of Lords. Well, for, fortunately now we have a prime minister that is absolutely determined to get this thing through and. Um, and I think I actually think the population are on his side. I think that um, you know when he said to the EU that we've had enough now, um, we're just moving forward. I, I think that there was a, a huge amount of support for Boris. Mm. I suspect, and I, I don't think this has been mentioned terribly much, but I, I just wonder whether the EU are holding off to see what happens with the American elections because you know if Biden were to win, I don't think he will. But if he were to win maybe they think that uh, our position would be weakened mm. in some way and, you know, we'd uh, scramble to do a last-minute deal with them because of fears of a US trade deal falling apart. Perhaps, no. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be surprised if they're certainly stalling for that very purpose. Just finally, Lance, let me get your thoughts on what's going on uh, elsewhere around the country with COVID-19 restrictions, Tier 2, Tier 3, Tier 1. You know, I mean, it's all, it's all over the place, really, isn't it? Uh, well, well, interestingly, you know, one of the arguments for uh, this internal market bill was that we should be able to treat every part of the UK in exactly the same way. Mm. And here we have COVID and we're treating literally each part of the UK in a totally different way. It is absolutely crazy. You know, if we were going to have three tiers, what we should do is we should have tier one, the over, let's say, over 80s, tier two, the under 80s that are you know vulnerable in some way and tier three the under 80s that 
aren't vulnerable. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's really how this thing should be dealt with. You know, we should, um, you know, we should rely on the common sense of, of the public. You know, mm. we don't just, just think, you know, you don't have barriers on every edge of every pavement, you know, adjacent to the road in case people run into the road and, you know, run themselves over. People aren't stupid. Right. People do understand the risks now. And, you know, people that are vulnerable will naturally want to socially distance because they understand the risks. And I think trying to legislate for every last little detail, you know, it's just, it's, it's just crazy. You know, if you, if you want to, if you, if you want to get this sort of um, thing through, you have to carry the population with you. And when the population either don't understand or think the rules are bonkers, which they are, um, it's just going to be an impossible task. We, you know, we have to treat people as grown up, explain to them what the risks are, and just let them get on with it. Yeah, I think I couldn't agree more. Lance, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Lance Foreman, former MEP, businessman, of course, as well. A man who knows a thing or two uh, about selling fish as well. Uh, apparently the Germans don't eat fish. Who knew that? Uh, I wasn't so sure about that. Maybe it's because they haven't got much of a coastline. 
that's the problem. Even intelligent people who would normally be informed haven't reached a starting point. Of the facts are all there. I'm, anybody who wants daily reassurance should go to Toby Young's excellent Lockdown Skeptics website, which has an enormous amount of reference material uh, showing what's actually happening with things like uh, intensive care bed occupation and the, 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 the real significance of the supposed cases of COVID, which we're constantly being told are so serious. It's, it's there and it's, it's, it's very well done. And as I say, it's full of links to reference material from serious people. And as a resource for somebody who's worried, I can't recommend it highly enough. Mm -hmm. I keep up my own barrage on Twitter and on my blog and elsewhere. But the fact is that this, that probably is the central point at which anybody needs to start if they want reassurance that they haven't gone mad. Well, exactly right, because I can't quite work out what's going on in Manchester. Andy Burnham, on the one hand, has previously said that he wants a fuller lockdown, but he's now saying he wants more money before that can be achieved. But if, as we are being told, uh, the, the critical cases are rising and the death, therefore, uh, uh, numbers are likely to go up, why is he stalling? It doesn't make any sense to me. No, it seems to me to be little more than a power struggle, but I, how can one tell? Mm. I want it quite plain is that if he was offering principled opposition to the plan to strangle what remains of Manchester's economy, which the government is putting forward, uh, then he wouldn't be open to offers of money. And what is this money? Anyway? All it does is it provides a temporary period during which the economic disaster, which faces much of the country, is, is postponed. Mm. Uh, but it, it only postpones it. This is not real money. Who, who now is actually paying any tax to, to actually produce the money f f from which all these vast subsidies stuffing the mouths of council leaders with gold are being are being produced? It isn't there. And, and sooner or later, the the horrible truth of the fact that you, you can't magic money out of nothing will come home in a very, very damaging and frightening way. Already, I think those people who've been sustained in, in jobs by furlough are realizing that this is, as this is coming to an end, those jobs don't exist. And that really means something. That means people who've lived all their lives meeting their bills mm. and being able to support themselves are suddenly faced with the awful uh, exile into penury, which is universal credit. Uh, our welfare system may be very expensive, but it's not at all generous to people who are thrown on, 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 onto what I used to call the dole. Mm. And people are going to find it very hard to make ends meet. And many, many people who've been used to, to paying their way, deprived of the means of livelihood, are going to be extremely angry when they find out what's been done to them. But for some reason, uh, the, the exaggerated praise for Rishi Sunak and Rishinomics, uh, people just don't realize this, this is a temporary state of affairs. The economy is actually going to go over the edge before very long. Yeah. I can hear the roar of waters at Niagara. I've been saying so since we first started having these conversations in March. I mean, I always said to you um, that the numbers would be so huge and so ridiculously uh, unfathomable that somehow the government would have to just ignore the fact that we're in all this debt. But you're quite right to say that so many people are now going to be out of, out of work because we're already starting to see it. We're starting to see uh, people that worked in pubs, people that owned pubs in their 50s, finding themselves unemployed for the first time in their lives. And at the age of 50 plus, pretty much impossibly tasked with trying to find another job. It's a terrible age to be to, to be to be flung onto the stones at fifty. It, the people it, it say that there's no age discrimination, but of course there is. And mind you, it's not much better for the young and people who are coming out of university now, assuming that they've been able to finish anything remotely resembling a course in mm. these circumstances. What are they faced? 
where are the jobs which that would, would would normally have been available to them? This, the, there's going to be huge competition for any secure and stable job, and indeed for lots of insecure and unstable zero-hours contract jobs mm. over, over the coming months, because that's all there's going to be. I, I, I just wish I could find some way of getting across to people that the extraordinary level of damage which has been done by Johnson and Hancock and, the, and, and their cabinet allies to this country for no good reason. It's just extraordinary. Uh, and, and there is absolutely no system by which anyone can be adequately punished for the number of lives they've read. It's not just that. I mean, I, I wrote at the weekend about about, uh, about Lisa and Peter King and the mm. terrible thing that happened to Peter King because the National Health Service has become a national COVID service. He couldn't get a proper consultation with the doctor. What was wrong with him wasn't spotted in time, and he died. He didn't just die. I, 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 I talked to Lisa on the telephone, and it was awful to listen to. This is a grown man, a strong, brave man, screaming in agony at the end of his life. Because the health service had, had failed him, yeah. and this is not this is not an isolated incident. So many people have not been able to get the necessary checks for for chronic conditions and heart disease and cancer, and they will suffer, and their families will suffer terribly again because of Hancock and Johnson's ridiculous mistake and a wholly out of proportion reaction to this. And people have been asking you, I, I know over the weekend and probably before that, um, when will you realise that this is not just incompetence, but there is something else going on? I don't really take much from that. I don't think there's anything but incompetence going on here because you see it in other countries. And I see Italy today has announced that they're going to go moving uh, to the rule of six. Um, and, and in Italy, they've, they've done what I would suggest is a reasonably good job over the last few weeks, but clearly they're now thinking that they haven't done enough. Well, there are all these governments are like people frantically pressing buttons and pulling levers to, whose operation they don't fully understand. And politicians aren't actually particularly qualified. Uh, I'll recognize that it's something else when there's, when there's hard evidence that it's something else. But all my life I've seen evidence over many, many years of reporting from the, the, the front row of the theater and my nose pressed against the window pane of history. I've seen over and over again the enormously important role of human stupidity uh, in what happens in life. And, and, and I, I've always found it a perfectly adequate explanation for these things which happen. A lot of people are not very bright. And there is, say, the, this, however it is we select our politicians, I think there is a secret examination during which they have to prove that they're stupid before they can get in. But however it is we select them, they aren't very bright. And you can tell by the things that they say that they're not. So that will satisfy me until there's evidence of anything yes. else. But there's also this kind of very odd um, thing abroad, which I, which I can't quite put my finger on. This is when I was talking about getting to the truth. I was reading a paragraph uh, in this story in The Guardian this morning about hospitals in the north running out of beds. Now, all of the stories I've seen about this are all about what could happen, what might happen, um, you know, the, the, the possibility of, of an overwhelming of the uh, NHS. It says, by Friday, 211 of the 257 critical care beds in Greater Manchester, which is 82%, were being used for either those with COVID or people who were critically ill because of another illness. Now, it's quite important to me how many of those beds are occupied by people with COVID because if it's not very much of a percentage, then why would we expect it to get any bigger? And why also is it a news story that 82% of critically ill beds are occupied by people who are critically ill? Well, this is true, and it, there are many aspects to this. The first, first of all, is that a body called the King's Fund did a survey some years ago, establishing that the number of critical beds and beds in general in British hospitals was substantially lower than in comparable countries in in the in, in the advanced part of Western Europe. Mm. You don't have that in 
The second point is that at this time of year, because it, it, it means there are more respiratory illnesses, there is more pressure on ICU beds, and they're likely to be full. And the third thing is that, as you rightly say, every, almost all the people who are wheeled onto uh, broadcasting and into the newspapers to say these things use weak verbs like might and could. Mm because they can't say is. I have been in a, a grapple with the Department of Health and Social Care and, uh, and NHS England for the past week and more, simply trying to get uh, factual details of the, the nature of the hospital admissions for COVID, which we're being told are happening. Uh, are they admitted because they have COVID or are they admitted for something else then found to have it and listed as having COVID? How many of them actually have symptoms? Uh, the, there are other questions which I'm, I'm shortly going to ask, is how many of them are, are released and how quickly, because I believe that quite a large number of people are not staying in hospital. But the, what one gets, one asks for a glass of water from these government departments, and after several days of nothing, uh, generally at the last minute, they produce a load of spreadsheets saying, here you are, it's in here somewhere, you find it. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, but I, that doesn't seem to me to be the job of a, of a, of a government uh, press office if they're asked specific questions. They should either say, well, we don't know the answer. Uh, here are the spreadsheets on the Monday when you ask. Uh, or, they should, uh, or they should find out the answer. What they shouldn't do is do nothing for days and then bung you a load of, uh, a load of spreadsheets at the last minute that you can't conceivably uh, work your way through, and which probably, in my view, don't contain the information I've asked for. They're very, very opaque about this, and they're opaque about it for the simple reason, in my view, that they, they don't have the information they claim to have. And it probably isn't anything like as bad as, as they say. But you, you must remember uh, that there is a, that, that everything that the government says about this has to be doubted and questioned. You simply cannot take anything they say at face value. These are people in a panic. They've made a terrible mistake. They, they, they haven't the, the courage to admit it. Uh, they, they, they've, they've completely ignored important and serious warnings. They ignored the Great Barrington Declaration and uh, their, their media allies smeared the Great Barrington Declaration. Well, I mean, it barely got a mention one day, I think, the in the news. Scientists it? saying that what they've done is wrong. Yeah. And I mean, it was it was mentioned sort of in passing one for one day, one sort of 20 hour news cycle. And then it was immediately forgotten about again. And if, I find it extraordinary, um, as I've said to you many times, that, that journalism in this country has sunk to such a low level um, that, you know, that you have to tell them to ask the questions. I mean, you would think that that would be the natural state of any journalist. You know, you don't believe what they say. Therefore, you quiz them about it. Uh, just before we move on, Greater Manchester MP Yasmin Qureshi has apparently been admitted to hospital uh, with coronavirus. I wonder whether that might have some impact on, on Andy Burnham. Let's talk about that great uh, Bob Moran cartoon, though, that you put out earlier today. <laughs> I was well, Yesterday, in fact, which is a picture of Boris Johnson in a blue dress dancing with, I presume, Sir Keir Starmer. Um, sort of dance macabre, I suppose you would call that, wouldn't you? Yeah, dirty dancing in the grave. <laughs> with the, with, with the, it's well worth it. Bob Moran is, I think, uh, emerging as the the most distinguished and powerful uh, political cartoonist of our time. Uh, he has uh, two things. He has a very, well, it's more than two things. He has a very uh, good way of being serious while at the same time making uh, a joke. He has a beautiful line of drawing, immense clarity and uh, a lovely uh, landscape and painterly touches in the in, in his cartoons, which made them a, a joy to look at. But he's very, very hard hitting. Uh, yes, yeah, and, 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 and it's a great image because it kind yeah. of is 
uh, it does point to the, uh, the the sort of nonsensical nature of what seems to be going on all around us. Because, I mean, again, this weekend, I was sort of overcome with this sense of, of how it's all just nonsense. And, and I wish somebody would just get to the heart of it. Well, there is there is a lot of um, there there is a lot of movement. I mean, how much one can can cheer oneself up about it, I don't know. But several newspapers, which at the beginning of this largely accepted that the government was doing its best, have now changed their lines and are increasingly critical, which must have an effect. Uh, there are outposts of, the, of even of the BBC, which will occasionally allow me on to speak, and others where, again, the cracks are beginning to show. Uh, but my experience of monoliths, which was, is, is very much of the collapse of the great communist regimes of the, of, of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, is that they stand seemingly invulnerable for ages and ages and ages, and then an extraordinarily short time. Uh, as a result of some development that no one had foreseen, they collapsed into splinters mm. and rubble. And I think that this is what will happen. I think a moment will come, I don't know what it will be, uh, when it will become so obvious that these people don't know what they're doing and that they've, they've messed it up. And, and people will be suffering so much from it that they will just it will just fall and it will come to an end. Uh, the sooner the better. Uh, and I, my watchword is uh, remain angry but remain mm. patient. Because you can't, I, I very much believe that we, we, we have to preserve the rule of law and our liberty. And I don't, uh, I, I will not advocate any action against this, which doesn't, which is not, which is not lawful and, and within the rules of our democracy. I just have to say, though, that if Parliament believes in itself and in the rule of law, and if the courts believe in the rule of law, they really do need to pay a bit more attention uh, to the enormous pressure. Uh, for change and relief, which is building up. I think the, the, the continued effective blocking of Simon Dolan's court case uh, is, is just astonishing. And the failure of so many MPs to understand that their, their duty to protect the livelihoods of their constituents is one they're simply not doing uh, is shocking. But they have to do that if they want to save, uh, if they want to save our Constitution. It's not for me to save our Constitution, it's for them by, mm. by doing what they ought to be doing and doing what they're paid for. Yeah, I mean, my sense of, of, of his case is that he's not got the right case, if you know what I mean. I think he's, you know, he's obviously got some very capable barristers working for him, but it seems to me that he needs to try a different approach rather than the one which keeps getting knocked back because clearly it's going to keep getting knocked back. You know what I mean? But yeah, if you look at the, 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 the judge talks about things he'd read in the newspapers as, as, as if they were evidence right. for sake. Uh, I don't. I, 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 you may be right about the wrong case. I think that, um, that Francis Hall, the principal barrister involved, is, is quite smart and mm. is getting some good advice. It's very hard to know where to stick the, the lever in for this kind of thing. Uh, but the, the fact is, if you if you compare it with the response of both the courts and the, and, and the media uh, to the great cases about the European issue a couple of years ago, it's it, 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 although this is entirely comparable in importance and probably more important, uh, there's very little attention being given to it and very little willingness to listen. And I think it's uh, I think that we have to ask: uh, Are the courts taking this properly seriously? And yeah. I have to say the answer comes back. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. But as I say, I think he just needs a better strategy, to be honest. But let's talk about Sweden, because I saw uh, quite a few uh, pieces over the weekend. I read a massive piece in Time magazine, which I wasn't even sure was still going. I don't know whether you saw that, um, which was very kind of anti the Swedish model, if you like, saying things like uh, uh, the death rates were rising, that now they were putting new restrictions in. What it didn't do, though, because I don't think you have ever 
disputed the fact that the death rates necessarily are any lower, uh, and they're certainly not very good when you compare them to other Scandinavian countries. But your argument about Sweden is about the economy rather than about the actual disease, right? It's more complicated than that. Almost all coverage in what one is now forced to call the mainstream media, almost all the coverage of Sweden has been hostile to Anders Tegnell's uh, policy. Uh, and it, everything you read, you have to read very carefully, again, looking for weak verbs, could and might, mm. and, and things of that kind. And also going back to things like uh, Statista, uh, and it's it's very accurate and useful uh, website showing the, the rates of deaths per million in all the countries affected, and the coronavirus, uh, similarly, um, the, the coronavirus totals uh, on Worldometer. And what you will see there is that what happened in Sweden, and nobody denies this, least of all Anders Tegnell, is that there was a catastrophe in Swedish care homes comparable to the one that happened in ours. And just as the one which happened in ours was not uh, was not uh, prevented by the lockdown policy which the government had adopted, uh, the catastrophe in Sweden's care homes was not prevented or indeed affected uh, by the non-lockdown policy. It's, it, it's, it's another issue. And therefore, once you strip away from the, the figures for Sweden, the, the, the care home catastrophe, uh, what you'll find is that their their death figures in the in the normal population outside care homes are entirely comparable to those of its neighbours. So, that's, but on the issue of the economy, yes, of course, the Swedish economy is uh, is nothing like as damaged, particularly the. Uh, the hospitality sector, which has been so badly trashed in this country. On the other hand, uh, Sweden is still a major exporting country with a considerable amount of manufacturing industry, unlike us. And so it's very affected by economic decline in other countries and in its markets. So it hasn't got off scot-free by any means. Uh, but it's the thing is, what you're comparing with is what is what is possible with what exists. And in, in those terms, Sweden has made a better fist of it than we have. But I just get very tired of the ignorant and abusive way in which so many people look at the Swedish thing. And the, the fact they simply do not, uh, in many cases, give a fair representation of what happened or, or of what's going on. But anybody who visits Sweden now and one reads of several people who have, I long to do it myself, uh, it comes back and says this is a society which is functioning more or less normally. Well, I keep seeing videos of people wandering about in the city uh, as we used to, uh, yeah. you know, sort of passing people relatively close by. People like in, pe yeah, people in restaurants actually talking to one another, you know, people uh, not wearing masks uh, really to any, any any extent at all, I don't think. But then I was also troubled, terribly troubled, by a piece I read about New York uh, where uh, you and I both uh, used to work and, and where basically um, it's worse than London because de Blasio, the mayor, um, has banned anyone entering New York from about 35 different states. It's not a quarantine. You just can't come in. Um, Manhattan, the island itself, has become sort of desolate. Uh, all of the hotels are full of homeless people. People are moving out at a rate of knots. I mean, my sister has a, has a flat there and she's rented it out. But she said if I hadn't rented it out, you know, about two months ago, I wouldn't now be able to rent it for anything like the same money because the city's dying much faster than London is. It's like one of these science fiction movies, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, awful. Could you ever have imagined a city which, I mean, I've, I've never actually liked it very much, but could you ever imagine it? A city which is so very much alive becoming so dead yeah. and you have to ask yourself what if, if if you were the mayor of that city and these are the consequences of your policies would you actually be i don't know what sort of oath of office the mayor of new york takes but would you actually be, be fulfilling that would you not consider perhaps maybe that you've made a mistake and yet and yet and yet they don't mm. 
You mentioned masks earlier. I an interesting thing which I'd like to hear more about. But Alex Berenson, who's been who's the American journalist and author, who's been one of the opponents of shutdown over mm. there, tweeted over the weekend that he'd heard uh, from from somebody who'd been involved in the only randomised control trial uh, about the wearing of, of cloth, loose cloth masks in public and their effectiveness. And what he'd been told was, is, 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 when is it going to be published? Mm. And the answer from one of the scientists on the team came back, when we can find a journal which has the courage to publish it. <laughs> yes. I, I only put that a bit, what, what do you think that means? Do you think, do you think it means the study says masks are effective? I or doubt it. In the other much. Yes, it's fascinating stuff. Listen, please, I'm afraid we're at the end of our uh, half an hour already, uh, but great to talk to you again. Talk to you same time next week. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist, uh, a sceptic of the lockdown, of course, uh, and of many other things as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. When you read about official secrets acts being breached by civil servants, you do wonder what on earth is going on. What we have discovered over the course of this pandemic is that there are more civil servants than you can shake a stick at. An awful lot of people who are working from home, an awful lot of people who are doing some quite delicate work, and an awful lot of those people doing that delicate work, it would appear to me anyway, uh, who are quite, shall we say, partisan in their political beliefs, because I think that's what this Lord Darrick problem is all about. Uh, Sir Kim Darrick was forced to stand down last year after messages he wrote criticising the Trump White House, calling them inept and dysfunctional. Now, these apparent memos were leaked to the press, and there now appears to have been a civil servant arrested on suspicion of breaching the Official Secrets Act. Let's talk to Dr Alan Mendoza from Henry Jackson to find out what this is all about. Dr Alan, very good afternoon to you. Hey, Mike. Thanks uh, very much indeed for joining us. It's, it's got all the hallmarks of a great sort of spy thriller, this, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, it, it is that sort of thing. It's a whodunit. Uh, who actually released this information? Uh, who was it? Why did they do it? What's the penalty for them having done it? it? It certainly, as you say, provokes a lot of questions and leads into suggestions about what may have been the motivation as well. Well, indeed. And and one of the things that makes it a rather sort of juicy tale uh, is the story that appeared uh, in the mail at the weekend about this CNN reporter who's called Michelle Kaczynski, um, who's been accused of having an affair with Lord Darrick. Um, and the thing that I liked about it was that she suddenly, being uh, a very lowly reporter in Washington, D.C., suddenly uh, seemed to come into the, the power of possession of an awful lot of very interesting information that turned out to be true. Yeah, I mean, it's an obviously an interesting twist to the tale that uh, you, of course, had uh, this journalist appearing, the allegations of an affair, suddenly, as you say, information appearing as well uh, that she may not have got normally. That said, there was an investigation, it seems, and it, it appears that Lord Derek was not the source of it. So it could well be um, other people were leaking to her. Who knows? But um, you're right, it, it, it's, it's a bit of a strange one when a, a junior reporter, someone who's not known for their scoops, suddenly starts developing scoops at a time uh, when she is alleged to be involved with a powerful person. Yes. And I mean, the, the thing that's that's sort of piqued everybody's interest, I suppose, is this story uh, that happened this week, uh, which is quite a long time since the original memos were leaked, where uh, the Metropolitan Police apparently said that the Counter-Terrorism Command arrested a man in London on Tuesday on suspicion of offences under the Official Secrets Act and misconduct in a public office, which sounds pretty serious to me. Well, the Official Secrets Act is a serious piece of legislation. It's designed, obviously, to protect um, all manner of secrets, normally on national security grounds, but those will, of course, include diplomatic cables. 
And, you know, you've had a spate of leaks occurring in the last few years, and not much appears to have been done in terms of tracing the offenders. I think the biggest surprise, perhaps, is not necessarily, you know, that uh, someone has, uh, you know, been collared for this, but that it actually took a relatively short amount of time in the great scheme of these investigations to find them. Yes, right. And, I mean, the other sense that I'm getting from not just this story, but from lots of stories of late, particularly the ones coming out of the Home Office with Preet Patel, is that there's no doubt that the civil service has become much more political uh, over the past sort of decade. Would you say that? The civil service has always been political. I mean, you know, we laugh at yes, minister, but actually, you know, you knew 30 years ago what the situation was with the civil service and that it had its own views and it wasn't going to let politicians necessarily dictate what those, you know, views to them. So I think it's probably just a little more in the open because we've got different methods of communication that we never had back in those days. But I think it's fair to say we've always known that you know the civil service has a collective view uh, because of you know the sort of the the understanding of the types of people who work in it. So you get that sense that it's always been around. It's just a little more obvious now. Yes, but I always got the impression back then, and I mean having sort of been a student of government, I suppose since the late seventies, um, you know the civil service seemed to be to be a kind of steadying influence on the kind of crazy politicians rather than uh, the politicians being a steadying influence on the crazy civil servants. And it seems to me now that it's kind of flipped around a little bit, you know, because we've got civil servants who, to a large extent, have a political view rather than just a civil service view, you know, i.e. they might be uh, more likely to be uh, voting to stay in the European Union, for example, or they might be more likely to to favour certain types of policies rather than others, whereas in the old days it was more let's just stop this madness and let's keep everything as it is. Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I'm not sure you'll have found many uh, leavers back in the you know, 1970s uh, in the civil service, you know, opposing the referendum of that time. Right. I think, you know, the European issue has been one that's been constant, the civil service, much as with other institutions like BBC, has a viewpoint. Um, it just, you know, is self-perpetuating in that way. And I think um, although we can again say that it's a bit more obvious today because of the multiplicity of methods of communication, it's still something I think you and I have known about for a long time. No, sure. I mean, what is the damage here, though, from uh, uh, the point of view of, say, the, the, the British embassy in Washington? Because obviously there's an awful lot of diplomacy going on around the presidential election, uh, which is only a few weeks away now, uh, just over two weeks, in fact, uh, until we get uh, a, a possibly a new president in the White House. And there's a lot of kind of, um, shall we say, juggling for position, jostling for position here uh, in, in the various departments of state. Because there's a view that if Biden wins and Donald Trump loses, um, that you might need to, um, uh, you know, cosy up to the other side, as it were. Well, you will need to cosy up to the other side. I mean, if there's a change of administration, there's no doubt that if you are the British government, you will need to be speaking to the new administration and talking to them about uh, issues of mutual concern. There's no doubt about it. The question, of course, is when does that process start? How Mm. early do you jump? If you jump too early, you are, you look like you're you know, kind of stabbing the existing administration uh, in the back. Uh, if that administration happens to win, then it's a bit of a disaster for you, obviously, because you've seen to go the other way. So it's a, it's a it's a delicate game, isn't it? You've got to kind of pick your time carefully. Yeah, I mean, I, seem, know, to, I, I, I seem to remember there was a similar kind of situation when Bush and Gore uh, were up against each other, and, and nobody was quite sure who to back um, because they'd been quite friendly to Clinton, but they'd had problems with Clinton as well. Um, I mean, it's not something you can't come back from, is it? No, you can come back. Um, and I think the key to it is obviously to uh, be open to the administration. You've picked a great example there, by the way. Who'd have thought that Tony Blair, best buds with Bill Clinton, yeah. 
in the late 90s would suddenly and effortlessly turn into George W. Bush's best bud right. just a couple of years later. I mean, you know, you've, you've got you've, you've got the example perfectly right of how you can do that delicate dance. Yes, indeed. And as far as the Official Secrets Act goes at the moment, I mean, if this guy and obviously there's an investigation going on, we don't know whether whoever he is is is, is, is guilty of anything. But I mean, what is the punishment then if you are guilty of breaching the Official Secrets Act? I imagine it's pretty serious. Well, the top end is jail. Yeah. Um, depending on what you've got on, you can go down for up to two years. So, yeah, that's a serious offence, obviously. Um, there's all talk about maybe they should, you know, introduce a, a raft of different, uh, you know, kind of sanctions as well for lesser offences, you know, make pay for the investigation, things like that. Mm. But, yeah, it's, it's a serious offence. And if you break it, if you're found to have broken it, you will uh, be hauled up in front of a court. And, I mean, does the Official Secrets Act go to every civil service job, uh, or is it only the kind of the more sensitive ones, I suppose? It relates to national security. So um, if you come across those sorts of documents, now that may be, of course, interpreted broadly, uh, but I think obviously you'd have to be able to defend that in a court to say why something is, is national security focused right. but uh, you know, there are obvious reasons why governments want to keep those things uh, underground yes quite and as far as the um, the ambassador's job is concerned i mean i guess it's it's traditional if there is a change of administration in the white house that you probably change the ambassador no that doesn't actually happen uh, in our in our system um it does of course for the americans uh, all the ambassadors technically resign but they could be uh, reappointed yes when change in their administration but we wouldn't necessarily replace the ambassador. And of course, our new ambassador's only just recently arrived. Mm. So it seems un- unlikely that we would uh, change her uh, right now. Obviously, um, none of that's going to help uh, old Lord Darrett, who, of course, um, you know, was left high and dry by the leak. So um, it was you know, deeply unfortunate for him at that time. Absolutely right. Well, it's fascinating. We'll be seeing, I suppose, what happens over the course of the next few weeks. Uh, I think they're recalling uh, this guy in November uh, to the police station to see what they can tell him. Dr. Alan Mendoza, Executive Director of the Henry Jackson Society. Thanks very much uh, indeed. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.